Welcome to Shouts of Grace Radio, hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. At Shouts of Grace Radio, it's our purpose to encourage you to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. Today we are taking a break from our regular format to listen in on a Sunday sermon given by Pastor Steve titled, The Leaven of the Pharisees. Please get out your Bible or favorite Bible app to follow along. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. A good reminder, you guys, why, why is it that you come to church? Do you, do you come, are you involved in a community of believers, um, you know, for the reason of being a better person? Is, is, that, is that what you think? Is, you know, I'm, I'm going to come because, you know, it just talks about good things and positive things. And, you know, my kids will come. And if, if my kids come, I don't want them to grow up to be mutants. And so, you know, particularly these days and ages, so I just come and because it talks about good things. Because if that's how you, if that's why you come, okay. I mean, that's, that's okay. But, but you come to be transformed. You come to be made different. You come to be turned into the image of Christ, to, to, to gather your weekly, you know, fellowship and feeding through his word and worship, and then to go back out there and live it and to make your mistakes, ask for forgiveness, and you come back and, and, and corporately we get together and, and, and we pray for each other. But, but that's, that's really what the church is. The church is not a display of your good behavior. I hope you know that. I hope you know that when you come to church, as many people do throughout our, you know, our world on Sundays, they come so they can put their good behavior on display and show everybody how good they are and what they don't do and what they do and, and, and you know, just how, how, how wonderfully godly they are. And what Pastor Robert talked about last week was just real, real in step with that. That, that when that becomes the aim of a church, that you put behavior and you put conduct on the altar and that becomes the same thing, not Jesus, the, the behavior, not Jesus, the behavior becomes the thing you strive for, then you know what? You, you will prop up every good thing that you do and every bad thing that everybody else does, you will just make an impossible standard for them to live by because they're not living up according to what you want. Let's make no mistake. God, God desires holiness, so we understand that. God says, be holy as I am holy. But holiness is not you just gathering around and rallying around a bunch of rules and then patting each other on the back when you succeed because you'd never be patting each other on the back for the amount of times we failed, right? And so what happens is what Robert talked about last week is when people get into legalism and they get into traditions and that becomes the aim, that becomes the thing we go after, then what often ends up happening is the very thing God wants from you, a broken heart and a contrite spirit gets pushed to the side and conduct gets elevated. And the truth is there isn't anybody in here that is living 100% the way God wants you to live. You're just not. Now, you, you may not be so bold to say that, right? You might keep that a secret, but as somebody who's lived with Jesus for 30 years, who, who goes to pastor's conferences and watches all the holy people glow, you know, because of how wonderful, you know, well put together they are, as so you got the adulterer in the corner over there, you got the, you know, the, the child trafficker over there, you've got the money launderer over here, while we're all, everyone's raising their hands, the, the, truth, of the, the truth of the matter is, you guys, that 
church needs to be a place where legalism isn't what's exalted, but the grace and the mercy of God is exalted. And so, you know, we, does a person, you know, is, is it wrong to listen to certain things, to watch certain things, to wear certain things, to drink certain things in excess of this? You know what? Yeah, it can be. But here's the amazing thing about being a Christian. God is with you working it out in you, right? The church isn't laying demands and trips on you to tell you, here's what you need to be to reach this status of godliness. What I have found in 30 years is God takes every person on their own journey. And as he does, they become holy according to where he's at and they're at in that given moment. And that's different. That's different across the spectrum. So I rejoice for people that are, you know, 10, 15 years down the road than me. And and I'm looking at that going, man, you know, as long as you don't make you the standard and the rule, then legalism will be squashed. But the second that man puts up their standards and that becomes the aim rather than a relationship with Jesus, you know what I found in 30 years, you guys? I'm terrible at keeping rules. I don't know about you. I'm terrible at it. You know, it's like, this is what it looks like to be holy. Oh my gosh, why I'm terrible at this. You know what I'm much better at? I'm much better at just loving Jesus and letting him produce convictions in my heart that ultimately get me to a place where I'm keeping the law, if you will. But he's the lover of my soul. He's the one that I go after. And sometimes it's a little slower. It's a little slower because of me. And that's okay. He still walks with me. So I hope you find a refuge at Redemption Hill and you don't find a referendum on every conduct that you're trying to work through. You know, well, my my old pastor said I could drink three beers, but not four. And I got to, you know, I want to be careful. My my old pastor said that I can wear shorts, but they can't be ripped at the bottom and they can't have a thing. I can't see anything through that. You know, what do you say? I I ain't going there. (laughs) I'm saying you love Jesus And God will produce convictions in you, and then you're accountable to those convictions, not ours, right? So anyway, so this morning we're going to continue in Mark, um, really chapter 8. We'll finish up chapter 7, but we'll kind of enfold it in there. But our main focus is going to be Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. And so before we go there, what I want to do is I want to throw some (laughs) paint down on a canvas so that what we look out, what we look at stands out and we can see it. Up to this point in Mark, Jesus is well known amongst all the people, right? He, He is working in such a way that his fame has caused chaos in the cities. In fact, he's to the point now where he's out in the wilderness because they can't contain him when he comes in. And Give you an example. In March chapter one, <laughs> when we set out, I still got this cough. How many of you guys have had the long month long cough? Just me, huh? Yeah, I don't have COVID and I'm not sick, <laughs> you know? And don't send me a bunch of emails as to what your WebMD says. You got walking pneumonia. I don't need that. I just got a cough, okay? Um, so I'm going to have my seltzer water here. Um, but in Mark chapter one, Jesus goes into a synagogue, and it's his first stop after his baptism. He sees a demon-possessed man. He heals, or he casts out the demon, and we're told that in that place were Pharisees and his disciples. 
And we're told that everybody marveled because they had never seen anything like this. And more specifically, they had never seen anyone exercise an authority or teach like him. And they even said, this guy teaches different than the scribes and Pharisees. They were there, the scribes and Pharisees. They heard that, okay? The disciples were there. They saw that, exercising of authority. Also in Mark chapter 1, we're told that later they brought people out into the streets and they were they were, you know, had diseases and they had sicknesses and they had demonic possessions and Jesus healed them all. We're told that the disciples saw that and we're told that the Pharisees were there and they saw that. In Mark chapter 1 verse 40, Jesus heals a leper and he tells him to go show himself to the priests. The priests and the Pharisees saw that. The disciples, you guys, saw that and witnessed it. In Mark chapter 2, who could ever forget where the, the house is packed and they drop the young man in through the roof. And as he lands there in front of Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, man, I haven't seen a faith like this. He says, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees were there and they saw and heard that and they reasoned in their heart and they said, nobody can forgive uh, sins but God, this guy's blasphemous. And Jesus turned to them and said, so you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, take up your bed and walk. And the man was healed. The disciples witnessed that. The Pharisees saw that as well. In Mark chapter 3, we're told that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he healed a man with a withered hand. Now, you don't do that on a Sabbath day. The Pharisees let him know that. This is the Sabbath day. You can do that any other day, not now, not this day. They saw it. They heard it. The disciples saw it, and they heard it. In Mark chapter 4, he's in a boat sleeping. You guys know the story. He gets up on the bow. They think they're going to die. He says, shalom, peace, be still. Everything quiets down. Their eyes open up. They're in amazement. They saw the demonstration of God's power in Christ. In Mark chapter 4, or in Mark chapter 5, he lands on the, on, on the shores of, of uh, the Gadareans, and two demon-possessed men come. We're told they were so strong that they couldn't even be chained anymore. And they fell at Jesus' feet, and they said, if you come to torment us before our time, he took them, he cast them into the swine. They saw it. They witnessed this power. Also in Mark chapter 5, he raises a young girl from the dead. And three of his disciples were in the room, and they saw it. In Mark chapter 6, he sees 5,000 people as it's getting late, and he has five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies them, and he feeds them all. In Mark chapter 6 as well, when the first time they were, you know, he was in the boat with them, now he's up on the shore, and Jesus is watching his disciples row, and he realizes it's the, it's the late shift, and, and the storm's getting big, so he walks out to them. They witnessed the power of God defying physics, walking on water. Here in Mark chapter 7, he speaks from afar a word to a young uh, Syrophoenician uh, uh, woman's daughter and says, your, your, your daughter's healed. Go home. She'll be fine. And she was. And here and also in Mark chapter 7, he gives uh, a deaf man back his ears. After all of this, you guys, and more, which the other gospel writers record, it's safe to say that Jesus has demonstrated who he is. 
He doesn't owe anybody anything. He doesn't, there, there, there's no resume he has to put out there. He has defied physics. He has defied the unseen world. Everything is in authority. Uh, he has authority over everything in existence. So one would think there's nothing left to prove this should settle it. It's now been two years of his ministry. So read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come a very long way. And his disciples answered, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So I told the first service, everybody slap your head, okay? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the people and before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven basketfuls. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat, and the boat, into the boat with his disciples, and went to the district of Dalmanthua. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation Seek a sign. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, he got into the boat, and he went to the other side. Now they had forgotten, that is the disciples, to bring bread. Here we go again. And they had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Did you not, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have, do you have eyes but you can't see? And having ears you do not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you still not yet understand? I have a 15-year-old daughter, and she enjoys theater. Um, and every time, you know, she's made it into the Sarah theater company. Um, and so 
Every time around play season, I become very familiar with the play. And the reason I do is because she walks through my house for four months singing all the songs and doing all the monologues and rehearsing her lines and here, dad, will you do this? And singing in, in, the, in the shower, right? And so by the time the play comes, I feel like I've already seen it or at least I've heard it, right? The only surprise is what the other kids do. We, <laughs> and sometimes that's a surprise. <laughs> um, we call that redundancy, right? Redundancy is you do something over and over again until you get it, until you understand it, until you memorize it, right? It's necessary in learning, you know, what you're trying to, to, to accomplish, right? Until the actors get it. Or if you're in sports, it's redundant. You're over and over. You're practicing until when? Until you get it. But listen, you can't practice forever. There comes a point where the practice has to give way to the stage, right? Where the performance has to take place, where you have to demonstrate what you've learned in private out openly in public. Otherwise, if it's perpetual practice, um, everybody's going to quit because everybody's looking forward to actually putting, in, <coughs> putting into, here goes that cough, told you, putting into action the things that they've learned. You guys, here in Mark chapter 8, there are two groups of people. Two groups of people that are aware of all that Jesus has done. They've watched him for two years, and that is the disciples and the Pharisees. And in this narrative, Jesus interacts with both of them. But he does so very differently. And I want to take a look at how he interacts with both of these. First with the Pharisees. After all that they had witnessed, both in what they heard and what they saw, in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, it says they came to Jesus seeking a sign. They wanted a sign. right? After all that he did, it wasn't enough. They still wanted a sign from heaven. Nothing was good enough for them. Nothing was good enough. In Matthew eleven sixteen, Jesus says, what shall I liken this generation to? You're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to your playmates. We played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance. We sang you a dirge and you didn't mourn. John the Baptist came to you neither eating nor drinking and you say he has a demon. The son of man comes to you eating and drinking, and you say he's, you know, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. So what is it that you want? Do you want, you know, holiness and piety? I give you John the Baptist. The dude hasn't taken a shower. He doesn't comb his hair. He doesn't shave. He eats funky things. He does all these holy things, and what do you do? You say he's got a demon. Okay, the Son of Man comes to you with liberty. He comes eating and drinking, freedom. He's, you know, loving tax collectors and sinners, and what do you say? You say he's a glutton and a drunkard. So what will it take is what he's saying for this generation. There's no way, there's nothing that God presents to you. It doesn't matter what he presents to you. You won't accept it. You don't care. 
You simply won't respond the way that you should. Folks, the problem wasn't that God didn't show them enough. The problem was it didn't matter what he showed them because they chose unbelief. They chose it. When the Pharisees came to Jesus in Mark 8:11 seeking a sign, he responds to them with a deep sigh in his spirit. <sighs> it means that Jesus groaned with grief and frustration in his spirit. Modern day it would be considered you and I doing something like seriously? Like are you kidding me? Like for real? Jesus answers them when they say, show us a sign. And he says, no. No. I'm not going to show you a sign. Now, why would Jesus tell them no? I mean, they just want to make sure, right? They just want to get it right with God. Why would somebody who's, you know, pursuing after, going after, or following Jesus around the countryside, show us a sign? Why would he say no? I'm not going to show you anything because it didn't matter what he showed them. It didn't matter how many more signs or how much more evidence he gave them. The problem wasn't the lack of evidence. The problem was their unbelief. Listen, folks, unbelief did not flow out of a lack of evidence for these people. They saw miraculous things from God. Unbelief was a condition of their heart that wouldn't allow them to accept the evidence. Let me say that again. Unbelief, you guys, did not flow out of lack of evidence. I mean, man, if some guy stands up on a boat, man, and he calms a storm, if some guy delivers a demon and you're sitting there watching, if, if, if a guy bound to a bed since he's been born gets up and starts walking, evidence isn't your problem. So the unbelief didn't flow out of a lack of evidence. Folks, the unbelief was a condition of their heart that would not allow them to see the evidence. It kept them, no matter how convincing it was and no matter how much of it there was. This was Jesus' point when he told a parable to the Pharisees in Luke 16 about the two men. You remember the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had all that he had during this life, and the poor man Lazarus had nothing. He had sickness and sores, and he sat and he scratched himself. He got the, the worst end of life, and then he died. And guess what? The rich man died too. The commonality in the story, everyone makes it. And so the rich man goes to this place called Hades where there's torment in this story. And, the, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man looks over the chasm between the two as he's in pain. And he says to Lazarus or to Abraham over there with Lazarus, said, hey, can you send somebody over here to tip their finger in water and, and put it on my tongue? Because I'm in torment over here. And Abraham responds and he says, yeah, no. And he says, well, then, can you at least let me go back and tell my family about this place so they don't end up here? And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And the rich man says, no, no, no. If somebody comes back from the dead, 
They will, they will believe. Let me go back. And here is what Abraham said. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The problem isn't the evidence. The problem is the unbelieving coldness of their heart that won't let them interpret the evidence. Even if your son is risen from the dead and he's in front of you, He's saying that unbelief will keep a person from recognizing the strongest empirical evidence that you give them. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Shouts of Grace Radio with Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If you've been encouraged in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At shoutsofgraceradio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us at Shouts of Grace, it's our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.